It was late December 1941. Following a devastating surprise attack at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, the United States and Japan were at war with each other, and things weren't going very well for the Americans at all. Morale was beginning to wane on the home front, and the Japanese were feeling all but invincible. President Franklin Roosevelt needed to turn the tides, and lucky for him, there was an MIT-educated daredevil pilot who was ready to lead the U.S. to military glory and avenge the lives lost in Pearl Harbor. In this week's episode, we're talking about this lesser-known attack which had a massive effect on the Pacific Front in World War II. It's a crazy interesting story, so it's about damn time that you grab a drink, settle in, and enjoy this episode of Hunter Proof History, titled The Doolittle Raid, A Taste of Your Own Medicine. This is Hundred Proof History. We're drinking whiskey and talking history. So, grab a drink, sit back, relax, and enjoy a few laughs as the guys talk about all the horrible things people do to each other. Here are your hosts, Chris and Greg. Hello, everyone. Friends. Enemies. Family. Lovers. All of those different descriptors. Welcome in to another episode of 100 Proof History. As always, I'm Greg, and I'm joined by my trusty co-host, Christopher. Thank you. Thank you. I'm just so happy to be here, where we're going to tell this tale of American glory. This uh, point in time, modern times, where I feel like there's a lot of American pride going around. Like, we're all just super, you know, we're in the same boat kind of attitude. We're all together. Just want to yeah. press on as Americans, you know? Yeah. If you want to get an abortion, do it now. <laughs> well, by the time this airs, it may be too late. Who knows? Extra, extra, get your abortion. <laughs> right in here, right down this dark alley. No <laughs> need to fear. All it'll cost are some of your teeth. <laughs> what? <laughs> Why? Lim is, bro. That's just a doctor's fetish. I don't know. I'm just the guy that rings the bell. I don't throw the teeth in the teeth bucket. Why would I know? <laughs> yeah, times right now kind of suck. But this is a tale of American heroics overcoming tremendous odds to try and boost up the morale, change the tides of the war. Very cool story. I'm so glad that we're the ones that get to tell it to you. Yeah, I mean, extremely cool story. As you said, it is a, a tale of Americans uniting behind one another, everybody being all in on kind of a common cause. And with this recent Supreme Court news, man, I don't see a, how this shit ever returns back to a state of normal. So... Mm. Let's just do this fucking podcast so I don't have to think about it. How about that? <laughs> right? Shut up about politics, man. Just stop talking about it. Let's go back to when things were good. Let's make America great. God damn it. Damn Fuck. It. <laughs> <laughs> no, but 2016 aside, at least us uh, citizens are united. You know? <laughs> you just call us citizens united. Yep. That's what you Not a part of the problem at all. <laughs> not a part of the problem at all. That's probably not in there. I don't know if people get Citizens United joke. Whatever. Learn something, nerds. 
listen to another podcast for that part and then come back to us and go, oh, <laughs> I get it. Well, I swear that's the only time we're going to be political on this show. Ever again. Ever again. <laughs> like, such a fucking lie. But if you guys want to read about American greatness, American accomplishments, then I highly recommend you check out our main source. Target Tokyo, Jimmy Doolittle, and the Raid that Avenged Pearl Harbor by James M. Scott. Good book. It really was. It was Wouldn't really you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, it was a really good book. Uh, it starts off slow, but then once they start the raid, when they start going, man, you just can't stop turning pages. I read this thing so fast once it hit that point. Because it's just, it's just so good. See, I didn't read it. What? But I think it's a good book. Why is that, you ask? How is that? Because I have a subscription to Audible.com. Whoa. Dude, it's so great. Just making a, making the drive to and from work, to and from this recording studio that we call home. And it's nice just to be able to accomplish two things at once. You get that boring drive out of the way. But it's a lot less boring because you're learning about something. I occasionally venture into the, the fiction zones. You know, the romance novels with Fabio on the cover. Mm. Those sort of fictions that I wish were not so fictionous. Fictitious. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, if you guys are interested in a one-month free trial for Audible, please go to 100proofhistory.com slash audible. Sign up. Like I said, 30-day free trial. And whatever book you choose during that time, even when the trial's up, you still have that book. You can still listen to it. So give it a shot. Otherwise, I will commit seppuku. <laughs> no, and real talk, man. I will go back. Books I have read, things I have covered, I will listen to the audiobook because it adds inflection. Like, I've read... Uh, in Different Stars Above, the book we did for our Donner Party series, which is only available on the Patreon. Great book. I read it like three times. I've listened to it at least one and a half times because it's just so good. And there's even just reading it and then listening to it, you pick up things that you miss. So I agree. It's a, it's a great way to take in a book. So check it out. And that obviously helps us out. That's why we're talking about it in the way we are. But I'm not lying to you. Like I legit use Audible all the time. Yeah, he, just, he hasn't read a book in three years. That's the <laughs> truth. That is not the truth. <laughs> but I uh, do love me some Audible. Yeah, it's very cool. And if you guys want to hear some more stories, whether we got them from traditional books or Audible, be sure to check out that Patreon. $3 a month. It fucking really helps out. You get access to tons of shit. There's a bunch of extra stuff. Like Chris said, we just released something on the Patreon that's a preface to this episode. But all you guys that subscribe to the Patreon, fucking true MVPs. It, it keeps the motivation going, pays for all this bullshit equipment. I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do with when I rage quit this one day. <laughs> uh, it helps out a lot, and we do appreciate it. I don't feel like we, we ever say that, so thank you very much. I don't thank them because I feel like I deserve everything that's given to me. But Dude, I do too. I'm just faking this. Shut the fuck oh, up. Yeah, I like the humility. Very good. We need to get more money. <laughs> <laughs> all right, with all that out of the way, not going to bug you with it again. Chris, you want to tell us a little something about the uh, the Doolittle Raid? You know, honestly, 
most of the time I'm like, yeah, I can't fucking wait. But this time I really can't wait because this is such a cool story. So let's let's get into it, man. Sold it. Thank you. Sold it hard. Three, two, one, go. Our story begins at the end of the year 1941. The U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor was still reeling from the devastating attack of December 7th that left over 2,000 people dead and a whole lot of ships out of commission. In the days that followed, Japanese forces captured Guam, Wake Island, and would soon seize Manila, the capital of the Philippines and producer of that weird tan construction paper that you knew and loved as a kid. Is that construction paper? Is it like folders? There's manila paper. You didn't have manila yeah, paper when you were a kid? I just remember manila folder. Hmm. I remember manila wafers you put inside of banana pudding. That's just manila. Is it? Not the only thing I put in there. <laughs> no. <laughs> I was 13. <laughs> I mean, it was the summer. You just kind of <laughs> try and figure things out. Home alone. <laughs> Her stepmom comes home, and she's like, okay, time for 4th of July dinner. Here we go. And you're like, oh, God, please stop. Please, no. You don't know what's happened. <laughs> Gregory, did you put your fingers in this banana pudding? Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Just my pinky. <laughs> well, following all of those attacks, America was reeling, and President Franklin D. Roosevelt was all sorts of polio horny to go on the offensive and strike back at Japan. The only problem was his armed forces were woefully underprepared to do so. When Roosevelt had inspected the army in 1940, he found an alarming number had to perform drills using broomsticks as their guns, and a great deal of them had never even fired a rifle. That's not all he found upon inspection. No? No. He's just walking through a formation of soldiers. Excuse me. Rolling through a formation of soldiers. (laughs) I think we talked about it before. He had another man behind him carrying him like a marionette puppet. Throughout it so they wouldn't know he had polio. Well, yeah, he's inspecting it, you know. They're all lined up in formation. Mm -hmm. Standing at attention. All right, boys, it's penis inspection day. (laughs) You know, the usual penis inspection day. That's army standards, yeah. Yeah. But I guess rolling through there, you know. Have a good view of it, kind of eye level. (laughs) He only stopped for the ones that cast shadows on his face from above. All right, let's see that ABC. Uh, I'm sorry, sir, what's an ABC? The ass ball connector, you fucking moron. (laughs) It's the taint. Let's see it. (laughs) I don't know if y'all know this, but Roosevelt was a bit of a fucking perf. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he married his cousin. I mean, that's step one in pervdom. Yeah, yeah. Going to the family reunions, like, oh, she's hot. I mean, her brother's hotter, but uh, I have no shot with that guy. Oh, she is hot. I need to sit down. Oh, wait. <laughs> oh, no! sitting down. <laughs> I can't get back up, except in one area while I look at my cousin. <sighs> I used to be proud of having a podcast. Be like, listen to my podcast. You guys, but I've made Franklin Delano Roosevelt gay for his male cousin, and you made him go along the lines of soldiers and expect their boners. <laughs> we are a history the, podcast. Why do they have boners? It's just a <laughs> flaccid penises. They're- it's the president. If you can't get a boner for the president, you don't love America. 
Okay. And you know what? When I run for Senate, that's going to be my uh, my slogan. <laughs> well, in addition to the underprepared Army, the Army Air Force had 3,000 planes, but only about a third of them were ready for war. And the Navy was so desperate to recruit new sailors that they slashed their standards to the point that they were willing to enlist a guy who could only function as a human after downing a can of spinach. Hmm. Popeye. Popeye joke. That old olive oil. You know what I'm saying? Virgin olive oil. (laughs) I'm not going to lie, though. I'd rather have a virgin blue toe, personally. (laughs) Show him a thing or two. Why did that guy hate the Navy so much? Jackass. Was he... He was 4F'd, he couldn't serve in the military, so he's like, I'm gonna steal this sailor's girlfriend while he's off at sea. No, he's a fucking Jody, bro. Was he? Yeah, the guy that stays behind and tries to get all the service members ladies. Yeah, was he 4F'd for being so fat? He was just too obese to fit in a submarine or something? He was fucking jacked, bro. Don't talk about Bluto that way. <laughs> you bench press your entire body. <laughs> That's that's not hard. I'm 70 years old and 112 pounds. Oh, okay, yeah. Forgot about that. Shtick. (laughs) Well, sometimes I'm 400 pounds. It depends on what the joke is. That's true. Well, despite their military deficiencies, Roosevelt still wanted a plan for how to strike directly into the heart of Japan. Letters flooded into Washington, D.C. that were just full of great ideas, like... Have commercial airline pilots fly 500 planes full of bombs from Alaska or drop bombs into volcanoes around Japan to trigger eruptions and convince the Japanese that their gods were angry at them. Or at the same time, actual members of the military were busy trying to solve the problem too. It was around that time that Captain Francis Lowe brought an idea to his commander, Admiral Ernest King. King was known for being a fun-loving booze hound who invented a drink known as the King's Peg, which was a mixture of brandy and champagne. My wife and I like to do something we call the Queen's Peg. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not going to go into it. It's a private bedroom thing. But <laughs> it, uh, I'm t- going up and down the stairs after that. It's a little hard. <laughs> this does feel like, though, one of those things... Or like you're 21 years old and you mix things you found in the fridge with the McCormick's vodka you have. You're like, I call this the the chief's headdress. There you go. Try that. I definitely remember doing that in college. Or military, as I like to call college. <laughs> I didn't go to college. I don't. King was also such a handsy dirtbag that women were often afraid to sit next to him at parties. And he was such a dickhead that one of his own daughters said, quote, He is the most even-tempered man in the Navy. He is always in a rage. Now she knows how I feel as co-host of this podcast. Good. Keeps you on your toes. <laughs> it's the only way I can make you be productive. So when Captain Lowe said, quote, What if we load medium-sized bombers onto an aircraft carrier? Sail close to Japan, and then bomb Tokyo, end quote. Not a real quote. I just put quotes around that in the outline for some reason. End quote. End quote. He probably expected King to lose his shit, get drunk, and honk the boob of Lowe's wife. (laughs) (laughs) 
his wife was a clown. <laughs> we didn't put that in the outline, but it's important to know going forward, I'm sure. <laughs> well, after all, at the time, the thought was that medium long range bombers wouldn't be able to take off or land on the short runways of aircraft carriers. But Admiral King was impressed with the young captain's moxie and told him to run it up the flagpole. See who salutes, see? Lowe called up Captain Donald Duncan, who was King's air operations officer, and also a duck. Yeah, he had a rich uncle. <laughs> He's just so angry all the time, never wore pants. Always screaming, you couldn't understand him because it was a speech impediment, which we all laugh at, but it's a disability, and we should all feel bad about that and cancel ourselves. Speech impediments are nothing to laugh at. <laughs> did I say impediment? <laughs> no, I did. <laughs> a good speech impediment. <laughs> I'm sorry then, because that was great. <laughs> Speech impediments. <laughs> Duncan said, perfect imitation of Donald Duck voice go, I mean, in theory, a B-25 Mitchell bomber could take off from an aircraft carrier, but uh, they wouldn't be able to land on one, so they'd probably have to land in China or something. And they're so big, they have to be carried on deck. So, you know, you'd have to have like a second aircraft carrier to protect the uh, first one from aerial attack. So, yeah, you can do it, but there's a lot of problems involved. End perfect Donald Duck voice impersonation. Nailed it. Thank you. But that was all King needed to hear. He called General Henry Arnold with a proposal, who loved the idea. But he's like, you know what? I don't know if it's going to work. It's a great fucking plan, guys, but let me run it by this nerd. This, this, this fucking dork from MIT, and that nerd agreed it was possible for the B-25 to do the job if fuel tanks were added to the plane. He just pushed his glasses up his nose like a fucking dork. <laughs> you just have to add some fuel tanks to it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I want to see your wife's tits. <laughs> that MIT nerd was a lieutenant colonel Named Jimmy Doolittle. So you put some fucking respect on his name, Greg. Yeah, I, I'm, uh, I, I'm Jimmy Doolittle. My, my buddies call me Small. Uh, small Jimmy Doolittle. You know? <laughs> I don't know where that came from, but uh, I would love to see your wife's titties. <laughs> the math group calls me Jimmy Doolittle because I solve all the problems. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that we've made fun of him, let me tell you how awesome fucking Jimmy Doolittle was because he's kind of a badass. They call me James Harry Doolittle. Uh, I, I shaved my pubes and butthole hair. So it's kind of like an ironic thing. <laughs> right, guys? I'm, I'm clean shaven as a, as a baby boy. <laughs> also, same sizes. Stop making fun of American Hero, goddammit. Oh, sorry. James Harold Doolittle was born in 1896 in California, but his dad had moved the family up to Nome, Alaska around the turn of the century, hoping to find gold. Instead, they found a godless wasteland with mud roads, public outhouses that sat over the ocean, dysentery, typhoid fever, and crime. Young Jimmy even had the pleasure of seeing a pack of wild dogs tear his best friend apart in the streets. Metal moment. 
His friend had some gambling debts. They didn't pay off, but, you know. But how else are you going to teach a five-year-old a lesson, right? Sick him, boy. <laughs> Jimmy was a little kid. In fact, as an adult, he'd only be five foot four inches. And it was because he was a tiny child living in a brutal shithole that he had to learn how to fight at an early age. After a whole lot of schoolyard fights, his mom got scared and said, quote, You aren't moving in with your auntie and uncle in Bel Air, end quote. But we are moving back to California. And that's when Jimmy Doodle, little nerdy, tiny Jimmy Doodle rose from the grave and said, Keep my mom's name out your fucking mouth. Is that a timely reference? That's a timely reference, right? The Oscars? This is coming out in May. Oh, what the <laughs> fuck? I did the yes. Prince of Miller. <laughs> no. Well, yeah, I got, yeah, yeah. Okay, I get it now. It was there in California that an English teacher slash boxing instructor decided to coach Jimmy, and at the age of 15, the 105-pound boy won the Amateur Boxing Championship of the Pacific Coast. And just so you know, um, coach, like, decided to coach Jimmy. Mm -hmm. This is old-timey for groom. <laughs> The teacher slash boxing instructor decided to groom Jimmy at the age of 15 when he was a 105-pound boy. Just want y'all to know that. And there's nothing wrong with that because as someone who subscribes to Disney+, Plus, apparently I am a groomer, according to half of Twitter. You know, because I still support Disney. I don't understand how any of it works, but uh, I've watched uh, all the Marvel movies. That's pretty cool. All the Star Wars stuff, so... Groom me up, baby. I just don't understand how you groom Jimmy when he's already, he doesn't have <laughs> a lot of hair. He's just fully groomed, yeah, fully groomed. And so, what, you know, what are you grooming there? <laughs> I'm starting to think maybe I don't know what groom means. <laughs> so when you told me your uncle groomed you, you meant like haircuts and stuff. Well, yeah, he. I'd get up on a little table. And he'd put a collar and a leash on me and give me little treats. And he'd run his fingers through my hair. <laughs> he'd say, good boy, and kiss me on the lips. Man, 19 was a crazy age for you. Jimmy soon met a girl named Josephine Daniels, who everyone called Joe. He fell in love, but her parents disapproved, and even his own mother told Joe she could do better than Jimmy. What a fucking shitty mom. It's like George Washington levels of mom. Like, oh, I don't know, this guy kind of sucks. <laughs> you, you could probably do better than my son. He's, he's kind of a piece of shit, and have you seen his button penis? And, <laughs> Stop it! <laughs> I know you shave it to make it look larger, but you're not fooling anyone. I'm doing the best I can! He's shaving his butthole to make it look larger. <laughs> look at this imposing butthole, boys. <laughs> you want to fight about it? I want to wrestle some men. Come on! <laughs> 
It's an American fucking hero, Greg. <laughs> True. Well, despite all that, eventually Jimmy and Joe would be married. Doolittle joined the army in 1917, and he soon began learning how to fly planes. He proved so adept at this that he became a flight instructor, but was kind of pissy when the war ended before he could be deployed. In 1922, he completed the first cross-country flight in less than 24 hours, and earned his bachelor's from Cal Berkeley. Hey guys, how you doing? It's me, Cal Berkeley. Oh, I was like, what? <laughs> you guys doing all right? Thanks for having me on your podcast. Uh, I'm real excited to be here. Check out my pics. <laughs> all right, Cal. You know, uh, I like handing out bachelors, but only, you know, the the ones that are like certified bachelors, you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> it's the 40s. I can't be uh, outright with this kind of thing, you know? <laughs> I like going to bachelor parties and uh, you know, tempting the bachelor. <laughs> hey, man, you're about to be locked down for life. How about one more go? They always say yes. They always said yes. And then they left me for their bitch wives. What the? F- <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for joining us, Cal. All right. See you next time. Bye. Well, then Jimmy was accepted into the Massachusetts Institute of Technology better known as MIT, where he studied aviation, helped develop theories on G-forces, and earned a master's and a doctorate, and was awarded a Distinguished Flying Cross by the Army. Following his time at MIT, Doolittle became something of a daredevil. He won several air races, and even traveled to Chile, where he broke his ankles after doing a handstand on a window perch, most likely while drunk. Those broken ankles didn't stop him from racing and performing stunts in the Chilean competition, but the doctors there did such a shit job fixing his ankles that when he returned to America, he had to spend several months in the hospital. But eventually he did get out and became the first pilot to take off, fly, and land using only the airplane instruments without a view outside of the cockpit. No fucking shaved balls on this guy. (laughs) That is a pretty big deal. Because, yeah. you know, back in those days, we're talking about World War One to World War Two, where basically you're flying by sight. Like, you want to drop a bomb, you're, like, throwing a lit fuse bomb out of an airplane, like a Tom and Jerry character or something. You know, it's it's not a very, like, advanced science at that point. It's basically lawnmower engines and wings and just fucking figure it out. So when he did this, it's pretty actually, this is actually pretty cool and, you know, pretty advanced. Agreed. Well, he was in the Army, but the Army didn't pay for shit. So Jimmy became a reservist and went to work for Shell Oil, where he convinced the bigwigs to produce a 100-octane fuel for use in aircraft. They were hesitant, but once he demonstrated it to the U.S. government, the government immediately placed an order and would eventually use 20 million gallons a day. It was while he was with Shell that Doolittle was given a tour of Nazi Germany. Realizing that they were primed for war and it was going to be a big one, Doolittle reached out to General Arnold and asked to rejoin the Air Corps. I accept. See, I was thinking, what you talking about, Jimmy? That Arnold. Gary Coleman. Different strokes. I like Schwarzenegger. Arnold better. Uh, whatever. I mean, this is Germany we're talking about. Come on. <laughs> I just feel like Gary Coleman would make a better general than Arnold Schwarzenegger. 
Like Arnold Schwarzenegger's the guy you want on the front lines. Little Gary Coleman. <laughs> yeah. They have to carry him around like they did like the uh, <laughs> the pharaohs in Egypt and shit. They have him on the little retinue. <laughs> yeah. His chair and they're all like shouldering the weight of it. Yeah, he's he's got his lifts in his shoes. He's just leaning forward and his big red ties hanging way over his pants. He's that guy in, in 300. <laughs> yeah, Xerxes. He's the Persian. <laughs> <laughs> but it's little Gary Coleman. What you talking about, Franklin? But he's been dead a while, so it's just actually a skeleton. <laughs> so it's really creepy. <laughs> but it's somehow less creepy than the tiny guy who's an adult but playing a child in a TV show. That's <laughs> true. What are you, my uncle? <laughs> yes, Greg. Always wanted to play hide and seek. Jokes aside, there was a the episode of Different Strokes where they got molested by the bike shop owner. What? Yes, he gave Arnold wine and gave him a bunch of gum, like took pictures of him in the back of the bike shop, gave him gum so when he went home his dad wouldn't smell the wine on his breath. Are you kidding me? No. Feels like a- Shit! Whatever happened to the very special episodes? Like, those went away. We need to bring those back. Let's do a very special episode of Hunter Proof History. Talk about getting molested. And that was how Jimmy Doolittle became the man asked to lead what was initially known as Special Aviation Operation Number 1. He began preparations by ordering up 16 B-25 Mitchell bombers and requested volunteer flight crews from the untested 17th Bombardment Group. The men of that group were all lined up, and they were told they were being asked to volunteer for a dangerous mission. They would probably die horrible, painful deaths and they wouldn't be given any other details until it was too late to turn back. At least they were given a heads up. Yeah, you know, was, hey, you're probably going to die on this. Do you want to do it? What What is it? <laughs> nice try, fucko. <laughs> Shut your fucking mouth, maggot! <laughs> All right, I'm in. <laughs> you got it. Because it was the 40s, and that's how America worked. But, Gregory... When they heard that famed pilot Jimmy Doolittle was leading the mission, every single one of them volunteered to go. How dare you call me Gregory? I'm sorry. You don't use my maiden name. <laughs> You're know, like, if that fucking nerd can do it, I can do it. I don't want to look like a wiener. You seen that kid? He has an asthma inhaler. Get out of bed. <laughs> His glasses are an inch thick. <laughs> He's very hairy, except very not hairy in certain areas. It's weird. It's like a clearing in a forest. (laughs) Oh, is this going to be like a a ranch that you've cleared in this area? Crop circle. Very unnatural. (laughs) It really stands out. It's like a crop circle if it was shaved in the form of an arrow pointing downward. I don't understand. (laughs) There's a little tan line of a Playboy bunny on his stomach. I, I just don't understand this shit. It's kids these days. <laughs> Hello, boys. <laughs> oh, God, this guy. Giving him finger guns. Let me to lead this mission. He's got the slick back hair, except he's got the alfalfa spike going on. <laughs> I looked at a Playboy the other day. I wasn't that interested. (laughs) 
As a group, they headed for the secluded Eglin Airfield in the Panhandle of Florida, where they began their training. The biggest hurdle was getting a 31,000-pound, 53-foot plane to take off in less than 350 feet, which was how long they expected the runway of the soon-to-be-completed USS Hornet aircraft carrier to be. It took some doing and some help from some Navy pilots, but eventually they were able to lift off in just 294 feet at speeds as low as 55 miles per hour. And little known fact, because they were planning on making a longer flight than the plane was able to handle, the B-25 bombers were outfitted with a 225-gallon rubber fuel bladder to add on to the normal capacity of 646 gallons. To save space and cut weight, the engineers removed the belly guns and installed two broomsticks in the tail of the plane to trick enemy pilots into thinking the plane had more guns than it actually did. Yeah, my doctors also removed part of my belly and added a rubber bladder. But, you know, it's unrelated. It was, it was just so it could collect, you know, waste and stuff. And provide a hole for truckers to abuse. For Oh, God. <laughs> That's disgusting. <laughs> I just wanted some reaction out of you. You're sitting there staring at me. Like, yes, you got a colostomy bag. Okay, that's very tame. Oh. Larry's joke. <laughs> you let people fuck it. There it is. There's, there's my threshold. <laughs> yep. Preparations were also underway in China, where American advisors began requesting supplies be moved to certain airfields, and they began reassuring the Chinese that help was on the way. The Navy brought the USS Hornet to San Francisco, where the 16 B-25s and their crews were loaded aboard on April 1st, 1942. The next day, the ship set sail for the mid-Pacific Ocean, where they were to rendezvous with a fleet of 13 other ships, including the USS Enterprise aircraft carrier. Make it so. That's my Jean-Luc Picard. Did I nail it? Did I, did I get yeah, it? Yeah, great. Great Star Trek job. <laughs> Along the way, Doolittle finally told his men the details of the mission. His plan was for the ships to carry them to within 400 miles of the Japanese coast. Then, just before dark on April 20th... Rest in peace, Columbine victims. Including Club Olden Harris. <laughs> I mean, they're also victims of something. System, bad parents, video games, we don't know. Bullying. Yeah. All that. One of them was kind of a bully. Like, they weren't actually that bullied. But... Yeah, it's learned behavior. Yeah. Open a fucking book. <laughs> or Audible. 100proofhistory.com slash Audible. Or wait till we do an episode on Columbine when we run out of other ideas. That'll be Next a, week. Hoot and a holler. <laughs> yeah. Actually, Doolittle was thinking, you know what? It'll be the perfect birthday gift for Hitler, April 20th. Bombs. Some guys like, sir, we're 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 bombing Japan. I don't understand how. No, 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 no. He'll get it. He'll understand. He'll be like bongs. It's four twenty. <laughs> yeah. Once they were in Tokyo, Doolittle would bomb military targets using a mixture of explosive ordnance and incendiary cluster bombs. Then the other fifteen crews would take off three hours after he left and use the flames as a guide to find their targets. 
Now, all of these targets were to be of military value, and the men were under no circumstances to specifically target any civilian buildings. Following the bombing, they were to fly to China, land, head home, and leave planes for future missions against Japan. Easy peasy. Everything is going to go according to plan. Don't even know why we're telling you the rest of this story. No schools are going to get hit. None of that, you know, crazy Afghanistan stuff. None of that. (laughs) No. Perfect. Perfect mission. Well, everything went smoothly until April 18th, when the fleet spotted a Japanese fishing vessel, the Nitumaru, which had converted which had been converted into a reconnaissance ship designed to protect the Japanese coast. It took, uh, let's just say, a ridiculous 928 rounds of 16-inch ammunition, but the USS Nashville sank the vessel. A bunch of drunk-ass hillbillies. Like, oh, this is what country music is now. It's about boats and cars and stuff. (laughs) We love this shit. And missing the whole thing the whole time. It's just, it was embarrassing for everybody. Mm -hmm. That moonshine, man, it'll get you. It will. I miss when country music was about, like, everything going to shit in your life. Shooting a man in Reno and ended up in prison, you know? Now it's just about drinking beer on a tailgate. In a dirt road. Kissing somebody. Cool. Yeah. It's always a female. <laughs> There's no gay country. Not, yeah, I'm just a champion of rights. Yes. <laughs> Darius Rucker's not singing about his husband, you know, that's, oh, yeah. that's all I'm saying. Still, the fleet had been spotted, which meant the jig was up. Even though they were two days ahead of schedule, and still over 800 miles away from Tokyo, and, Doolittle knew, they would never have enough fuel to make it into the mainland of China, as they had planned, he gave the order to launch the bombers. At 8.20am, in rough seas and stormy weather, Doolittle climbed into his bomber and was the first to lift off. One by one, the remaining planes followed him. The last was known as the Bat Out of Hell, which began to slip and slide on the deck. As a sailor attempted to remove the chocks in front of the wheels, he was clipped by the roaring propeller and had his arm practically sliced off. Other than that minor little, you know, hiccup, this major war, one guy losing an arm, whatever, happens to the best of us, the launch of the planes went off perfectly. The Hornet and the rest of the fleet turned back as Jimmy Doolittle and the rest of his raiders flew westward toward Tokyo, filled with anxiety about their mission, but completely unaware of just how harrowing it would really be. Cliffhanger. See you next time, bitches. (laughs) Stupid idiots. Be right back. We are back from break. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you've had a good time so far. Things are going to get a lot darker in the second half of the story. There's going to be some struggles, some obstacles to overcome. I don't know what's going to happen. I haven't finished the book, but luckily, Greg has. And he's ready to tell you 
what's going to happen. But I feel like I'm forgetting something. Like uh, every week we do this thing. What is it? Pregnancy test. That's it. All right, it was negative, and now we will celebrate with a seltzer, which I like to call the second half seltzer. Second half seltzer. Second half seltzer. Second half seltzer. Well, today, funny enough, you mentioned a pregnancy test. I am having a happy dad seltzer. And so we'll see how happy I am when we pop our tops in three, two, one. It's actually pretty good. Glad to hear it. It tastes creamy for some reason. That's the ingredient of dad. (laughs) The very happy dad. Yeah. It's happy for a reason, Chris. (laughs) Oh, well, now that we are enjoying our seltzers and the listeners enjoying theirs, I'm sure while they're driving or whatever they're doing, working out, Greg, do you want to tell these people what else happens in this story? The Doolittle Raid? No. Oh, okay, well, all right, well, check us out, (laughs) hunterproofhistory.com. I just wish you could do the whole thing. I couldn't. There's no fucking way. Oh, no, I know. I know. I know. I will do my part. It literally took us 18 hours to get through that first half. Yeah. Literally, but not literally. Shut up. As the 16 bombers formed a line that extended over 150 miles, the Japanese received word that the Nitumaru had been attacked by American ships. Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto, who had engineered the attack on Pearl Harbor, had been expecting a reprisal for months and could finally tell his superiors, I told you so. (laughs) They rushed out to sea, hoping to intercept the American fleet before it could attack Tokyo, because there was absolutely no way that the Americans could launch an aerial attack from over 800 miles away, right? That's correct. Wrong. Ah, damn it. In fact, the people of Tokyo all pretty much thought that a direct attack by a foreign enemy was all but impossible. They'd set up some defenses and had practiced some air raid drills since, you know, invading China earlier in the 30s, but for the most part, they went about their day-to-day lives thinking that the war could never come to them. And who could really blame them? The city had been formed in the 15th century, and in the 400 years since, it had never been attacked by a foreign power. Even when planes began to race overhead at about noon on April 18, 1942, The people of Tokyo assumed it was part of a drill by the Japanese military. And again, the original date planned for this was April 20th, Mm -hmm. but it just got fast-forwarded a little bit when they ran into the old sea cruiser bad boy that got sunk. And no one would ever know it was the anniversary of Columbine. And a (laughs) certain birthday. Quite the fine gentleman. My cousin Anthony. Oh, Oh, okay. What? No, there's somebody else born on that day, I'm sure, but uh, I don't know who. I don't sure know. Who there's a lot of people born on that yeah, day. It's a very common birthday, April 20th. I know Weed was born on that day. <laughs> Jimmy Doolittle and his crew were the first to arrive, flying as low and fast as the train would allow them. As they crossed the Sumida River in northern Tokyo, Doolittle spotted three fighters thousands of feet above him unaware of the American bomber racing below. He reached his target at about 1.15 p.m. 
and climbed to 1,500 feet, where his bomber, Fred Bramer, released four incendiary bombs. Despite targeting an armory, the four bombs mostly fell on and around a school! Oh. It's exactly what we fucking... They no! weren't intentionally targeting the school. Come on, man. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it's shitty. We should probably address that. Because I feel like there's going to be some morals attached to this story. Modern day morals. where We have these smart bombs and drones. Like I can literally shoot a ward off Greg's dick with a missile from 20,000 feet. No, you can't. But uh, back in these days, it was kind of like... Uh, that kind of looks like a target. Let's drop the bombs. You know, there's a little bit of panic dropping. You know, like let's let's be fair here. They're just letting things fall out of their plane and hoping it hit where it should hit. Oh, never mind. They're completely absolved of all wrongdoing. <laughs> Chris is so unsympathetic. Unbelievable. Whatever. I haven't forgiven the Japanese for what happened. They changed Sailor Moon in, like, season six, and I'm upset about it. Okay. Okay. I raised my eyebrows, like, well, you care to expand here? Yeah. Like, the masked tuxedo man, he kind of, like, disappeared, but he was an integral part of the plot. It, it was a whole thing, okay? The message boards were lit. I'm not alone. We have not forgiven. We will not forget. I will take your word for it. Thank you. Well, thankfully, the whole dropping a bomb on a school thing, um, the good news is the children were spared, and only two people were killed by Doolittle's bombs, but 36 buildings were burned to the ground. Doolittle dropped his bomber to just above the Japanese rooftops and turned south, heading for China. Two other planes followed Doolittle and were able to drop their bombs onto factories and military targets. The fourth plane in line found itself a massive 75 miles off course to the south. As they turned north to attack Tokyo, a group of Japanese fighters that were chasing Doolittle spotted the plane and opened fire. This fourth plane was forced to ditch their bombs into the ocean and turn away to avoid being shot down. Can't believe this. These fucking dolphins and starfish and crabs just living their life and suddenly bombs drop onto them. War as hell, man. They never had that coming. That's fucking bullshit. What if there was a big hole, like mm-hmm. in the earth, and it went down to, you know, when you're a kid and you imagined actual devil he- hell, you know? Mm-hmm. And a bomb fell all the way down the hole and detonated, and all those demons are fucking screaming and writhing about, and they're like, ah, oh, war as hell. <laughs> and they look around, they're just like, oh, fuck, hell's hell. <laughs> this is bullshit. You know what I'm I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> Pretty smart, huh? Yeah, so smart. Thank you. It really makes you think. Like, our listeners are shutting down the podcast, like, what if that happened? Yeah. <laughs> what, what if hell was hell? <sighs> We're just going to give them a moment to think about it. Other than that bomber, (laughs) however, all the planes were able to unload their ordnance, and it wasn't until the later waves of planes that the pilots began experiencing serious resistance in the form of anti-aircraft fire. Of course, there were other problems during the attack. Most of the pilots had to pick secondary targets, or things that looked like military targets because they had flown so far off course, like, (laughs) they didn't know what they were looking at, so... That looks like something. Factory. 
It's your uh, it's your Pocky factory. They're making all the almond covered Pocky, the matcha tea Pocky. You know the the various flavors of Pocky, and uh, they're just going about their day. And suddenly, it's interrupted by Americans, and they form a lifelong enemy, and they become terrorists, and they attack the Twin Towers on September 11th. That's how it works. Oh, I also know Pakistanis. <laughs> Thank you for saving that. Thank you for... That joke was God, in a you nosedive. Were, you were floundering about. <laughs> that joke was in a sheer nosedive, and you pulled it up and smashed it right into the South Tower. I did. I did. <laughs> Canceled. Well, one of these gunners mistook workers on the roof of a school again as Japanese soldiers and opened fire with his 50 caliber machine gun. Sorry, I don't mean to laugh. <laughs> Killing at least one elementary school student. <laughs> like, they're they're literally in janitor's uniforms. He's like, oh, that's fucking Got him. Japanese military. Look at those long guns they have. It's broomsticks. Just like... They put on the uh, the bombers oh. to make it look like the head guns. All right. Everybody's thinking these broomsticks are fucking guns. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to make a broomstick gun. Regulate the broomsticks. There's no Second Amendment right to broomsticks, Greg. And then my parents won't send me to conversion camp after they catch me in the, the pantry with the broomstick. You know, maybe life's different. <laughs> maybe things work out. I don't know. What do you think would happen if I lived back at this time, you mm-hmm. know, World War II in the U.S., mm-hmm. and they discovered that above my uh, 42-inch TV mm-hmm. in my living room mm-hmm. that sits on a stand, yes, if they saw my three katana swords, Ooh. do you think I would be put in a camp as a Japanese sympathizer? 100%. Yes. Interred. 100%. So when I hear a knock on the door, I should just stand up. Don't even change out of my kimono. <laughs> Just actually grab one of the katanas and start and go to war. And if yeah. I get wounded, seppuku all the way? Yes, 100%. Yes. Because if you get captured, that's disrespectful to your ancestors. Exactly. Yeah. No. Totally. I get it. I played Sekiro. I played Ghost of Tsushima. Trust me. I am not letting down my ancestors. <laughs> Matter of fact, I don't even know why you're laughing, but whatever. Well, I'm just curious why the Japanese are so upset over what looks like one twentieth of a Columbine. Like, okay, that's a Thursday in America. Get your shit together, Japan. Well, I mean, it was the 40s. That's yeah, true. When you take into account the inflation of population. Inflation rates, yeah. Yeah, it's about right. Well, the plane piloted by Captain William York had burned so much fuel on the approach that he knew China wasn't an option and instead diverted his plane towards the Soviet Union, something Mr. Harry Doolittle had strictly forbidden. Night was falling and the storms were building as Jimmy, no-hair Doolittle's crew, and 14 other planes raced across the Sea of China. By their calculations, the closest any of them would come to reaching the coast was 135 miles with some figuring they'd have to crash land in the ocean 250 miles away from the nearest landmass. Doolittle flew so low that he could see sharks swimming in the sea 
and dreaded the decision he was about to make when his navigator excitedly shouted, they had a 25-mile-per-hour tailwind behind them. That gave the crews hope that they could make it to China after all. Doolittle reached the Chinese coast, and as soon as he did, he brought the plane up to 8,000 feet and gave everyone the order to bail out. At just after 9 p.m., the crew jumped out one by one and parachuted towards what they hoped was friendly territory. One of his men would die in the jump after his parachute failed to open. That's fucking terrifying. No, no shit, yeah. That's scary. <laughs> just the fact that they're going to have to crash land in the ocean. Every time I get in a plane, I'm like, how does this metal tube stay in the air? How does this do that? And then I'm like, don't mm. question the magic. Don't question the magic, because that's what's going to bring it down. It's going to be your fucking lack of faith. Well, and the more you think about it, the more it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Because you think you're smart, but you're simpleton. Like I'm so me. stupid. <laughs> like, why is that wing extending? I can see inside the wing. No, no, it's not what right. What that falls off right now? <laughs> no, but uh, most of the planes would actually be fortunate enough to follow in Doolittle's footsteps and abandon their sputtering aircraft over the coast of China, but a few would suffer a much worse fate. Dean Hallmark, creator of the famous greeting card, mm-hmm. also known as not the creator of the famous greeting <laughs> card, uh, pilot of the Green Hornet, was hoping to make it to Hangchow Bay. <laughs> There's got to be a joke in there, guys. <laughs> like he's hung, right? Chow is hung. <laughs> I don't know. I can't put the pieces together, but it sounds funny. Let us know in the comments below. <laughs> which would allow him to follow the river to Chuchao, where the pilots were supposed to rendezvous following their attack. As they approached the coast, the engines went dead. The left wing clipped the waves, and the plane was ripped apart. Dean Hallmark was thrown through the windshield, but somehow survived. Navigator Chase Nielsen, who had suffered several gashes and a broken nose, used an axe and smashed his way out of the plane. Gunner Donald Fitzmaurice had a giant hole in his head, and Bombardier William Dieter appeared to have broken both of his arms. The men tried to tie themselves together to swim to shore. Fucking good idea, by the way. But instead, fell into the stormy sea and were separated by the waves. I don't know. Is it a good idea? Is that a good idea? idea? As long as you can untie. (laughs) You tie to me, I'm not fucking swimming at all. Oh, God, my, my legs and my arms aren't working, guys. Oh, oh. <laughs> Swim faster. I can only drink water from the water bottle that you feed me like a hamster. It's <laughs> yeah. the only energy I've left. Do we have any graham crackers left? <laughs> I thought you were thirsty. <laughs> graham crackers are the worst thing for that. I just need sustenance. Oh, electrolytes. Do we have any Gatorade on this trip? <laughs> Like, you're flailing your arms and legs about, asking for Gatorade, and you tell us you can't swim. I bring out the K-ration, and you grab for the K-ration. Your <laughs> arms work, you liar. No, it's only under extreme situations. Have you not seen a war movie? God. It's a miracle of Jesus. It's the 1940s. You have to believe me. <laughs> In the morning, Nielsen, Hallmark, and Bob Mater would awake to find that Donald Fitzmaurice and William Dieter had drowned and their bodies had washed onto the shore. 
The men were taken in by Chinese guerrilla warriors, but lingered near the coast for three days, which allowed the Japanese to find and capture them. Fucking Amy. She didn't tell them they needed to move on. She just wanted a husband. Do you feel like explaining this joke? (laughs) We've made this joke a hundred fucking times on this podcast. But we have new listeners every episode. (laughs) That's true. How do they know that you're talking about the gorilla from Congo? (laughs) The gorilla? speak with a fucking... (laughs) Power glove. Power glove. (laughs) (laughs) Amy Want Husband. 1996 movie that no one fucking saw except you and me. (laughs) (laughs) She had a power glove and she could sign and she could say things. And she wanted a husband, and that's what delayed this whole trip. I hope the I think it's I think it's funnier and we have to stop down and explain it. I think I'd make it better, Greg. But the good news was <laughs> Japanese soldier that arrested them, he uh, he told them not to worry, and they'd be treated just fine. In the bomber, ruptured duck, pilot Ted Lawson figured he had about a hundred gallons of fuel left and could guide the plane to a safe landing on the sandy beaches of eastern China. He was wrong. His plane was doing about 110 miles per hour, and he was still a quarter of a mile away from the coast when the engines died. All five members of the crew suffered serious injuries, including broken bones, but Lawson got it the worst and suffered a massive gash to his face that knocked out most of his teeth and an even worse wound to his left leg that put him in serious jeopardy of bleeding to death. Fortunately, all five men made it to the beach where they were spotted and taken to safety by Chinese fishermen. The final plane to lift off that morning had been Meatloaf's plane, the Bat Out of Hell. I wanted to do that so bad. You stole it from me. You just took jealous it motherfucker. You're just <laughs> jealous. Now I'm going to go get COVID and die just like Meatloaf. Jesus. <laughs> that night, the crew was forced to ditch the plane and parachute into what they knew was Japanese-occupied territory. They spent the night hiding out in a cemetery, but were discovered in the morning and arrested. They were then interrogated, beaten, had bamboo shoved under their fingernails and into the webbing between their fingers and waterboarded. Initially, they all refused to provide the Japanese with any sort of information, but of course, one by one, they suffered enough to finally break and give the details of the entire mission. The three men from the Green Hornet were tortured and confessed as well, and then all eight of the prisoners of war were taken to Tokyo. Kind of reminds me of a very, very early episode where we're talking about the uh, Munich hostages and how, like, the tough guys would be like, oh, yeah, I would have fought back. I would have kicked their fucking tooth in. Like, I feel like the same tough guys would be like, I wouldn't tell them shit. They couldn't get anything out of me. But, like, man, waterboarding? That's fucking crazy. There was a guy, uh, Christopher Hitchens, noted right-wing columnist, who said waterboarding was nothing. And within 10 seconds of being waterboarded, he was like, stop it. I will tell you whatever you want to hear right now because it's such fucking awful torture. You feel like you're dying. You feel like you're drowning. And um, if Greg wasn't such a P word, we would do it for the Patreon listeners. We both get waterboarded, but he said no. So I'll do it. Will you? We get waterboarded yeah, for the Patreon yeah. listeners. <laughs> okay. Yes. If we get 10 new Patreon listeners right now from this episode, I will waterboard Greg and he will waterboard me. And we'll see who can last longer. I don't even care what the questions are. Like, do you have gay thoughts? Well, I'm going to give that up immediately. We need to come up with something more stringent. Something more <laughs> in-depth. 
you know, something you can uh, you can really tie to us personally and blackmail us with. But if that happens, we will do it 100%. I'm down. Just out of curiosity. That's what's fueled my life. <laughs> Two kinds of curiosity. You might say by curiosity if you were trying to label it as a thing. Or by certainty. <laughs> by furious. <laughs> Stupid. Meanwhile, the men who had flown to Russia were pissing and moaning because they wanted to go home, and no one would let them. The Soviets were worried about starting a fight with Japan and opening a war on two fronts, so they held the American airmen as prisoners by keeping them in small houses and feeding them caviar and vodka. Fucking Vivaldi's Four Seasons with that one. True. Their biggest gripe was they were bored and cold. So in 1943, they were moved to Turkmenistan, where it was nice and warm. They used the opportunity to sneak across the border into Iran, sought out the British consulate, and were sent home. As he made his way through China, Jimmy Doolittle was sure he was going to be court-martialed for losing all 16 of his planes. Over the few days following the attack, he and 63 other airmen made their way to the airfield in Chuchao, China. This included all five men from the bomber ruptured duck, although pilot Ted Lawson had to have his leg amputated in a dirty Chinese hut and would later need extensive surgery to further amputate his infected leg and remove broken fragments of teeth that had embedded themselves into his skull. God, I'm such a fucking pussy. Just reading that story, I'm like, oh, no, no, kill me. Fucking kill me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, still... All these men slowly returned to the United States where Jimmy Doolittle was hailed as a hero, promoted to Brigadier General, and was given the Medal of Honor, even though he tried to turn down the award. Um, just a small aside, he actually, for the first time in his life, started growing out his pubic hair and <laughs> butthole hair. That's all rumor. Real talk, he did try and turn down the award. He tried to say, I didn't do anything the other pilots didn't do. And the Roosevelt administration was like, hey, we need a hero right now. We need this guy to be a fucking hero. We need good press. In response to the attack, the Japanese took out their anger on the Chinese citizens. They moved along the eastern coast of China, systematically killing every man, woman, and child in any village they believed had provided assistance to the Americans. Any woman from the age of 10 to 65 was subject to being raped before being murdered, and each town was burned to the ground completely. The worst horrors came in Nanjing, where 800 women were rounded up and taken to a warehouse, where they were repeatedly raped by drunk Japanese soldiers who wore little more than a loincloth as their uniform. It is believed that the massacre that followed the Doolittle Raid resulted in the death of at least 250,000 Chinese citizens. Yes, and little known fact, it was also during this siege of China that Japanese practiced biological warfare. They left behind biscuits contaminated with anthrax and typhoid, hoping the desperate and starving Chinese would eat them. They dumped infected bodies into the wells to poison the water supply and even released millions of fleas. 
in the hopes of spreading the bubonic plague. Well, they were actually infected with the plague. Yeah. They weren't just regular old fleas. And this is the infamous Unit 731. Which we need to do a story on someday, so I was kind of like hinting at it, but not really saying. Yeah, we should. For those unfamiliar, I mean, these guys were just, they were basically doing the stuff that Mengele was doing at Auschwitz. Um, they were performing all sorts of experiments. They were doing vivisections without anesthesia. Uh, they were poisoning people with many different things. They'd have anthrax. They'd have syphilis. Mm. These fleas, like, filled with bubonic plague. They would have them in these, like, porcelain balls. Just chock full of plague. Just yeah. To the they brim. Just <laughs> be able to fucking break, like, little bombs. Yeah. It was fucking wild, the stuff they did. They did come up with very special ways of dropping the fleas into, because they're like, we can't drop them from high-altitude bombs because it'll kill the fleas. Like, they did come up with special ways of doing that. But double, little-known fact, one of those fleas would go on to play bass. The Red Hot Chili Peppers. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so stupid, I'm a, sorry. That's a good double little-known <laughs> fact. I'm sorry. I apologize for everything I've ever done. Love it. I love the apology is what I'm saying. You, you <laughs> definitely need to apologize, so thank you. The eight Americans who had been captured following the raid were beaten, abused, starved, and left to suffer through solitary confinement in small cells that were infested with lice and rats. They were forced to sign false confessions, saying they'd been instructed to target Japanese civilians and that they had enjoyed doing so. In August of 1942, three of the men, Billy Farrow, Bobby Height, and Dean Happy Mother's Day Hallmark, were put on trial. It found guilty of war crimes and sentenced to death. The other five were given life sentences. On October 15th, Farrow, Height, and Hallmark were taken. <laughs> yeah, laugh, asshole. <laughs> were taken to a cemetery. <laughs> They knelt over graves and had their arms tied to a cross behind them. They were then blindfolded and shot in the head by riflemen. I'm sorry for laughing. The remaining five POWs remained in prison where they lived on a meager diet of rice and water and began to waste away to the point that they were skin and bones, and it hurt to just lie on concrete floors. Bob Meter would die of dysentery in September. The rest of the men would suffer beatings and starvation until the war ended in August of 1945. Spoiler alert. Shit, can't believe we put that in there. <laughs> Stupid. When they were rescued, they were so excited to have real food that one man said eating the spam from a K-ration was like having steak at a five-star restaurant. Can I real talk for a second? Just bring it back to the real world for a second, Greg? MTV Real World? Yes. Hell yeah. Road Rules. <laughs> With Puck and all them? Um, no. I've been incredibly poor at points in my life. One of them being now. Please subscribe to the Patreon. But, <laughs> no. I've been very poor, and you pass a billboard, and it's like Arby's. And you haven't eaten Arby's in 15 years, because Arby's sucks. Bro, they got the meats. So, it sounds so fucking good. I'm just... 
I'm over here eating ramen every day. You know, I'm just struggling. But look at that. I can put some Arby sauce on that. I mean, it's so fucking good. I could go over there and eat it at the restaurant. They have air conditioning and Wi-Fi. Oh, my God. That toilet with water. Oh, <laughs> slow Fancy. down. Yeah. But yeah, I haven't been spam at stake level of starvation after four years in a POW camp. But you know, we've all been there. We've all been like, oh, would love a double quarter pounder with cheese right now, you know? But I gotta settle for the fucking single. Mm -hmm. We all get it. We've all been there. Mm -hmm. Not in. You know, Billy Farrow and Bobby Height, they've never been in my predicament, <laughs> and I've never been in theirs. Fair enough. You know, but pain is pain. That's true. Yeah. So, like, you came home that time, and you're like, man, what the fuck? We're out of filet mignon? I gotta eat regular fucking prime rib? Ugh. Right. Uncultured swine. Yes. I agree. Mm. That's what it makes you feel like. <laughs> Well, in the end, you might be asking what the Doolittle Raid actually accomplished. I mean, it's just a few buildings in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. No real strategic advantage that you gain from this, right? Right. But the biggest thing was that it gave the Americans a victory to point to and showed the Japanese they weren't immune to the horrors of war. But also, following the attack, Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto was able to convince his superiors that the Americans were a real threat. It must be wiped out, and he turned his attention towards attacking the U.S. fleet near the island of Midway. The battle that ensued would be a major turning point in the Pacific theater. But that's a tale for another day. End of story. Woo! We did it! America, fuck yeah. We told that story. Mm. You know what? The... I feel like the Doolittle Raid doesn't get enough appreciation because it was a big turning point in the war. It had a big impact, but it's just that second half of Pearl Harbor we turn it off once Kate Beckinsale stops showing up in the movie. <laughs> I don't give a shit anymore. Well, you know, like we said, I think it it's very much a symbolic victory. Yes. They didn't accomplish a lot other than to say, hey, we will fuck with you in your biggest city. You are not safe. From all this shit that's going on. And I think that was a psychological boost for the Americans. And you will never have anyone as hot as Kate Beckinsale in your movies. She is so fun. She makes me want to go straight. Well, I mean, uh, she makes me want to stay straight. God. <laughs> oh, the one note jokes that we have. Just very <laughs> <know>. one note. <laughs> Whatever. We're good at what we do. Okay. <laughs> and speaking of being good at what we do, there are still some things from the story you need to know that we like to call the fast facts. Fast fact number one. Jimmy Doolittle initially wasn't supposed to be on the mission. He was just supposed to plan and organize it. But on a trip to Washington, he asked General Arnold, who told him to ask Brigadier General Millard Harmon. Doolittle sprinted to Harmon's office and said, Arnold says I can go if you say I can go. 
You know, like a little kid asking dad after mom says maybe. Harmon agreed, and as he was leaving, Doolittle could hear Arnold calling Harmon to tell him not to let Jimmy go, but it was too late. Fast fact number two. Secrecy was obviously key to planning the mission, but one important figure that was left completely in the dark was Chinese leader and generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek. The Americans were worried that if they told China what they were planning, either the plans would leak or worse, the Chinese would refuse to allow the bombers to land in their country because they knew the Japanese reprisal would be ruthless. Fast fact number three. Following his rescue, George Barr, who had been one of the POWs to survive the Japanese prisons, was so mentally traumatized that he refused to accept that his rescue was real. He believed that rescue was a new method of Japanese torture, and the hospital he was sent to was a prison. He attacked his doctors and attempted several escapes. It wasn't until Jimmy Harry Doolittle himself came to see George and reassure him that the airman finally accepted he was safe. And even at that point, he's like, hey, it's me, it's it's me. And he's still like just freaking the fuck out. He's like, no, no, let me prove it. And he, he dropped his, his shorts. He was wearing little boy shorts. Yeah. And uh, then he's like, oh, I really am bad. Fast fact number four. While Jacob DeShazer was being held as a POW, he made the decision that after the war, he would return to Japan as a preacher and try to spread Christianity to the Japanese people. He did, and one of the men he wound up converting was Mitsuo Fushida, the pilot who had led the first wave of planes in the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941. All right, we did it. We told the tale of Jimmy Doolittle's raid, the attack that brought America back into the war, and possibly saved the whole day. We don't know because we have, a, I don't know, like four more years of war to talk about on this podcast. We're trying to knock out World War II this year. We got a long way to go, uh, but uh, I think we can get there. I think we can do it. In the meantime, check out hunterproofhistory.com. There you'll find bios, you'll find links to the Patreon, and links to the Audible, where you can subscribe. And, you know, check the trial. Do a 30-day trial. Listen to books. You know, help us out a little bit uh, with that. And if you listen to the books, you'll be like, man, the story's cool, but I wish it had more penises in it. How can I make that happen? You come right back to us. Mm. That's how we hook you in. That's how we do it. Also, check out social media. 100 Proof History, at 100 Proof History. Memes, links to information about the story, pictures. Man, there's just so much you guys don't know that we leave out and then we give to you on the social media. Literally everything galore. (laughs) But that is it. We thank you for listening. For myself, Christopher, your sexy co-host, for... Dan Dan, the intro man, Wolf Dick, our esteemed invalid producer. We thank you. We enjoy your patronage. And we ask collectively, Gregory, actual 
most sexy host. What else? I love you. Yeah. So good. Bye. It was there in California that an English teacher slash balking balking. It was there in California that an English teacher slash god damn it. It was there in California. <laughs> California. <laughs> you keep it's funny, you're redoing <laughs> moving it, forward and you're back. fucking up earlier and earlier every time. Somehow I'm going to go Next back in time and fuck S- up the intro. S there in California. Fuck! <laughs> I said S, not it. <laughs> and then you'll just delete your entire audio file is yeah. the next step. Oops. <laughs> Look at you fucking, you fucking drunk pirate. I hate you. I hate you, I want you to die, and then I can do this by myself. <laughs> then episode episode number one, dissolved. <laughs> this entire series dissolved. Who told him to ask Brigadier General Millard Harmon? God damn it, I'm drunk. Well, I'd like to do a lot of that, too, but I, that's on my list, is Edinburgh. Yeah, sure, man. Don't listen to the dude that's gone to a fucking ton of countries over there. Yeah, that'd be a stupid idea. Well, I'll just go to Afghanistan. It sounds fucking fun. <laughs> <laughs>